And please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This will be our final message in 1 Corinthians for some time. Six weeks, in fact. Next week, I'm beginning a mini-series on marriage and family. It will begin on Mother's Day and finish on Father's Day. They're six weeks apart. And by God's grace, there it went away, Matt. By God's grace, um, it will be a time for us as families to evaluate our circumstances. You say, well, my family's all, all, all done up and, and grown. Well, um, that's okay. You're still a parent. You're still married. Still a sibling. We'll be referencing all of those different dynamics of, of family relationships. And I trust that it will be an encouragement to your heart um, as we do so. So because of that and the length of the message this morning, it will be a two-part message. I'll preach the first half this morning, the second half this evening, and um, then we'll step into our family series next week. Last week, Paul exhorted us in verses 24 through 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to run a good race, to run the best race possible in their Christian life. And as Paul said these words, remember what he said in verse 27. He said, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He said, I discipline my body lest that when I have preached to others what they need to do in their Christian life, at the end of my life, I would find myself to be a castaway. Now, we mentioned last week, this is not talking about Paul being afraid that he would lose his salvation. But did you know that it is possible to be a born-again believer and to be a spiritual failure? That it is possible that you could have reached the end of your days having been saved from the fires of hell but have absolutely no spiritual fruit to show for your years as a believer? Perhaps you're going to make it to heaven. You have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you have been saved. You are born again. You have borne the fruit of salvation. But the real question is this. Do you want to get to heaven the way you are right now? If you, were to, if you were to stand before God with only the fruit that you've borne in your spiritual life from the day that you've been saved till now, how much fruit would that be? We know that Jesus Christ saved us in order that we might bear fruit. Jesus Christ said, I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. That was not about living an abundant material physical life. It was about living an abundant spiritual fruit-bearing life. Paul has warned the church of Corinth that the consequences of not running their best race in this life could very well be dramatically negative. Yes, they're saved. Yes, they're on their way to heaven. But there's so much more to this Christian life than fire insurance. 
There's so much more that God has designed for us than simply not going to hell. This Christian life is meant to be a life. It's not meant to be an event. You don't get saved and then go back to the way you were. It doesn't work that way. If it did, there's something wrong. If it did, you may even want to reevaluate your salvation. Because if nothing ever changed, if there was never any fruit born, then are you truly living a life in Christ? And for we who are confident in our salvation, for we who know that we have accepted Christ as our Savior, for we who have borne that fruit of salvation, are you bearing any fruit afterward? Or are we content to heap onto ourselves all the weight and just kind of jog this race with all the weight of sin on our shoulders? with all the weight of this world, dragging all of our material possessions along with us as we head toward the finish line of this Christian life. And when we get to that finish line, which we will if you're a believer, God will cut off all that weight because you can't take it with you. And you'll have that last place on your name and you'll, be in, you'll go into heaven, but you won't have anything to present. You won't have any fruit that you've borne in your life for the Lord. Paul now appeals in verse in chapter 10 as he continues this same topic, this idea of running the race well, this idea of, of the liberties that we can set aside in our lives in order that we can run a better race. He now appeals to an example of many that fell short in their race. It's not that they weren't saved. It's not that we won't see them in heaven, but it's a group of people that fell short of everything that they could have been for Christ, for God. This passage isn't inherently about saving our souls. It's about saving our lives. You know that the Scriptures make a distinction like that in, in, in them? That... The saving of our soul for eternity is one thing. But the yielding of our lives to Christ is something entirely different. Oftentimes we call this salvation versus sanctification. Are we going to limp into heaven? Or are we going to come in bearing the fruits of a life lived for Christ? It's not inherently about where we're going to go when we die this, this morning, but what will we have to show for the time that we spent before we die? What will we have to show to Christ? What fruit will we have borne to Christ? Let's talk about it this morning. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says this, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all did eat the same spiritual meat, and all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock, that rock, was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples. Paul begins in verse 1 this morning 
He's very concerned that all of his teachings on liberty and responsibility find careful consideration among the church in Corinth. He is speaking to believers here this morning. We must remember that in our context. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ. He's speaking to those who have accepted the salva- the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to use biblical examples, biblical illustrations this morning to remind them of their personal responsibilities before God, lest they find themselves living in sin through ignorance, through misunderstanding, or through misapplication. And may I encourage us to do the same this morning. Paul is going to be speaking of the nation of Israel as they left Egypt. He will be using this illustration and connecting it to the church of God 1,000 years later in Corinth. If it connects to the church 1,000 years later in Corinth, then there's no reason why it shouldn't connect to the church 3,000 years later in Buffalo, Minnesota. So let's not write off this example as something for them but not for us. Let's not write off this example as um, a tenuous link that we don't really need to follow. It will be rooted in an Old Testament illustration but it's an essential lesson for us to learn this morning. He says, I would not have, I would not that ye should be ignorant. Don't be ignorant of these things, church of Corinth. Ignorant of what? Well, that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Paul, specifically speaking of his Jewish fathers here, the Hebrew nation, and he's speaking of their redemption from the nation of Egypt, way back in the book of Exodus. The two events Paul is specifically referencing here are the pillar of cloud that led Israel on their wilderness journeys and then the deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh and Egypt in the Red Sea. You're familiar with the circumstances. The plagues had taken their toll. Pharaoh finally allows the nation of Israel to leave Egypt. They're not technically a nation yet. They're just a family at that point. They leave Egypt and they are following a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the Lord leads them to the Red Sea. And as He leads them to the Red Sea, they are in a place where they are entangled in the wilderness, the Bible says. They've got wilderness on either side. They have the sea in front of them. And Pharaoh decides he did not, in fact, want to let them go. And he takes his chariots and he chases after them. And they are now entangled in the wilderness. They can't go north. They can't go south. They can't go back west because that's where Pharaoh is coming from. And then they've got the Red Sea on the east. And God delivers them by a mighty hand. He parts the Red Sea. He dries the water. And the entire family of Israel, which would become a nation at Mount Sinai, crosses the Red Sea on dry land. When they all get over, God allows the sea to crash upon the armies of Pharaoh and they are all drowned in the sea. Exodus chapter 15 is the song of Moses and the song of Miriam of great deliverance. The redemption of the nation. The redemption of this people from Pharaoh and from Egypt. Exodus chapter 13 verse 21 tells us this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them by the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and 
night. And notice specifically what, or should I say who, this cloud was. The verse tells us that it was the Lord Himself that went before them in the cloud. That it was God Himself that was leading them by this cloud. That it was God that was directing them in the way that they should go. And by the way, this is prior to the Red Sea. This is prior to them being entangled in the wilderness. It was not a mistake that God led them there. The nation wasn't actually following a cloud or a pillar of fire. They were following God as they took this journey. And then we see the second reference in Exodus chapter 14, verse 22. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Verse 22 tells us that the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. This was the path of physical redemption that God had made for them. While they were walking across the Red Sea, the Scriptures tell us that pillar of cloud went behind them and caused confusion among the armies of Pharaoh so that he could not see where they were going and so they did not reach each other as Israel crossed. And this is the the definitive story of the redemption of the nation of Israel from bondage. And notice specifically in verse 1 that Paul says all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Paul is emphasizing here that they all had the faith necessary to accept their redemption. They all had the faith necessary to be to follow God through this cloud and to follow God through the path of the sea and to get to the other side and to be saved from the bondage and the slavery of Egypt. These were an entire people redeemed by God physically. They were an entire people redeemed by God. And this is what Paul says in verse 2. He makes it very clear. Notice what he says. And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now the concept of baptism in the Bible is one that we would do well to understand. This is the word that literally means to immerse or to submerge. The reason why we as Baptists um, are called Baptists uh, they, the, our, our heritage is in the Anabaptists, and they were called Anabaptists, ana being the Greek term for to do something again. And so the Anabaptists were those that baptized after salvation, whereas most of the people of the day were baptized as infants. And as they stepped out from what they believed was an unbiblical practice of infant baptism, recognizing that in the Scripture, the example of baptism is always done after saving faith. They got baptized following their salvation. And they were called the Anabaptists. It later just became, uh, well, there was a, a group that came from the Anabaptists that were just the Baptists. And that is why when we baptize, we don't sprinkle, but we submerge or immerse because... That's what the word means. And that's the example that we see all throughout Scripture, that those who were baptized were waited until there was a body of water to be baptized in. Waited until there was enough water to be submerged or to be immersed in. However, as the Bible speaks of baptism, it uses two different... It, it's the same word and, and it references two different concepts. There is physical baptism, typically a water baptism where... 
it was a symbolic physical representation of something that you had inwardly committed to. This was both Old Testament and New Testament. In the Jewish religion, they would have proselytes. These were people who were not Jews by blood or not Jews by birth, and yet they wanted to become a part of the Jewish religion. They recognized the reality of the Word of God. They recognized the truth of the Scriptures through the Old Testament. That's what Israel was supposed to be. They were supposed to be the light on the hill. They were supposed to be the city on a hill. They were supposed to be rightly related to God so that others would recognize their need to be rightly related to God. And that they, as they would come to Israel, they would see that Israel is blessed by God. They would see that Israel is a nation set apart by God and they would say, I want this God to be my God. And when they decided to do that, they would proselytize. They would come into the Jewish faith and it would be through the method of baptism. They would renounce all false gods. They would renounce all heathen gods. And they would say, Jehovah God is the only one and true God. And they would seal that uh, outwardly. They would seal that inward commitment to Jehovah God by going through a baptism. This was the significance that we see when John the Baptist was out baptizing in the wilderness. He was baptizing not unto um, not unto a commitment to that which um, necessarily to Jesus because they had not announced Messiah yet. He was baptizing them unto repentance. It was supposed to be an outward manifestation that in their hearts they were preparing themselves for Messiah and ready to receive Him. This is why the scribes and the Pharisees, when they came to be baptized of John, he said, you're nothing but a generation of vipers. Bring forth the fruit that's meat unto repentance and then come and get baptized. You can't be baptized if you didn't first repent. You can't be baptized for something, in this case preparation for Messiah, outwardly, but then inwardly you didn't do any preparation. There's no out inward change that you're representing with your outward action, so don't do the outward action. So he said, no, you're a generation of vipers. Bring forth the fruit first. And then give the outward sign. That's why we do what we do in the Baptist church. You want to be baptized? Well, bring forth the fruit unto salvation. And then declare your salvation with an outward manifestation of what God has done inwardly. You're dead to yourself. You're alive unto Christ. You're dead to the flesh. You're alive unto the Spirit. So there's that outward manifestation of the inward sign. You know, an infant can't repent of anything. An infant can't even choose whether they want to be doing something or not. All throughout history, baptism has been an outward manifestation of something that you've chosen to do inwardly. An infant hasn't chosen anything. There's a second type of baptism that we see in Scripture, though, and and this is where some people get confused because there's a spiritual baptism. Spiritual baptism is what, how the inward action, the inward change in a person, the inward decision or commitment of that person, that's typically how that is expressed in the Scripture as a baptism. We see in in the New Testament a spirit baptism, the Holy Spirit baptism, which we understand to be that moment of salvation. When the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us as we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be saved, that is the moment where, the, where we, we receive the spirit baptism. The event where we have personally committed ourselves, separated ourselves in devotion to another. 
And as we look at this word in the New Testament, particularly in this context, it can throw us off a little bit. Paul says here that they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What does Paul mean here with this baptism? Well, it wasn't a physical baptism. We know that. Because being baptized, well, it would make sense to be baptized in the sea, except that they didn't get wet, did they? Their feet didn't even get wet. They walked on dry ground. They didn't all dunk their heads into the wall of water as they went through. That's not what Paul's talking about here. And not only were they baptized in the sea, but he says they were baptized in the cloud. And so what is this baptism that he's speaking of here? Well, clearly it's not the physical. It's the spiritual. Every person that followed the cloud to the Red Sea, every person that followed the cloud and then walked through the Red Sea, that took that step of faith, was exercising a spiritual faith whereby they set themselves apart to God by means of that faith in following God. They chose on that day that they were going to follow God and that they were going to trust Him to redeem them. And Paul calls that a baptism. They believed God, they followed God, and their faith in God by means of the cloud and the sea was a visible manifestation of their subjection to God's man, Moses, and thus to God Himself. That's why Paul says that they were baptized unto Moses. Several times throughout their wilderness journeys, they would murmur against, the, the, against Moses and Aaron. And on at least one occasion, Moses would tell them, you're not murmuring against me. I'm just the middleman. You're murmuring against the Lord. Because Moses was the Lord's chosen man, the one through whom God was working, the one through whom God was speaking, the one through whom God was leading His people. So the Red Sea was the definitive moment of national redemption for Israel, where their faith in God brought about their salvation from the bondage of Egypt. It was their baptism, their inward national commitment into a new way which would be defined in the chapters to come in the Law of Moses, Exodus 24. But God's goodness to them went well beyond His redemption, didn't it? It went beyond just the redemption of the Red Sea. See, after the Red Sea, they were redeemed. They were free. They were no longer in bondage to Egypt. Egypt would never come after them again. Well, several hundred years later in history. But not, not this nation, not this people. They were redeemed nationally. Now what were they going to do? Well, God didn't forsake them. He didn't just redeem them and say, okay, now go live your life. Go find your own way. God said, I've got a place for you. I've got a place of victory, of peace, and of rest for you. But you've got to get there. You've got to follow me there. And I'm going to provide for you every step of the way. But you're going to have to place your faith in me. And you're going to have to get there. Notice verse 3. Not only were they redeemed, baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea, but notice it says, and all did eat the same spiritual meat. Every single Israelite benefited from the blessings of the spiritual meat. The spiritual meat being spoken of here is the manna. 
the manna that God provided for them. It was only supposed to be a very temporary thing. A matter of the days or the weeks it would take for them to get to the promised land as God provided for them miraculously in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 16, verse 15. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said unto one another, It is manna, for they wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. That is the blessing that's recorded in Exodus 16.15 when God's people began to receive the daily physical provision directly by the hand of the goodness of God. They've been redeemed, but God isn't just going to forsake them. Now that He's redeemed them, He's going to provide for them. He's going to provide for their every need. But there's more. There's more still. Look at verse 4. And did all drink the same spiritual drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Not only did they receive daily bread, daily provision, but they also received water, which was provided for them miraculously. You perhaps recall the account of the rock which Moses struck to provide water for the people. Exodus chapter 17. Notice these are in order. The cloud was 13. The Red Sea was 14. 15 is the song of Moses and Miriam. 16 is the manna. 17 is the rock. Exodus 17.6 Behold, I stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. God told Moses to strike the rock. He struck the rock. Water burst forth out of the rock. Supplied the needs for the entire nation, possibly millions of people. And Paul specifically tells us in verse 4 that this rock followed them. The word here in the Greek is literally to accompany them and seems to imply that the blessings of this rock in some form followed them, accompanied them throughout their journey. Now there's a debate as to uh, how this rock followed them or what it means that this rock followed them. Some believe that just like the cloud, the rock did in fact follow them along the journey. That the rock went with them, giving them water. Others believed that the stream that came forth from this rock poured out upon the ground and as it continued on, that God led them along the journey following the stream that came from this rock. Some believe that they received water and they took from that, that rock a great deal of water and it blessed them along their journey as they continued back to that spot to refill from that water. And then finally, there are those that believe it's entirely metaphorical. Be very careful with anyone that believes anything in Scripture is entirely metaphorical. Other than that idea that there wasn't really a rock, that it didn't really follow them, as the Scriptures clearly teach, all of those other three are possibilities. Did the rock actually follow them? Well, that would be the most literal interpretation. I'm fine with that. Was it the, the water that followed them? Well, that would make sense too. We, maybe. Was it that they kept coming back to it? Less likely, but possibly. It's kind of a journey in getting less and less literal with each interpretation. Which one is correct? It's very hard to say because the Bible doesn't tell us. What we know is this though. That this rock, this spiritual rock, was Christ. 
and that they were blessed, they were fed from this spiritual rock. They were given drink by this spiritual rock throughout their journeys. Now, Paul is not just sharing this so that we'll know our Old Testament better. This isn't just an Old Testament survey class that Paul's giving in the middle of 1 Corinthians. Paul has a very particular reason why he reminded the church of all of these spiritual blessings. And the reason why is centered upon the word which we will see in all four verses, which we did see in all four verses. And that word is all. Every Israelite trusted God as he led them through the cloud, with the cloud. Every Israelite trusted God enough to walk through the sea. Every Israelite declared their obedience to the law of Moses in Exodus 24. Every Israelite trusted God for their daily provision. Every Israelite trusted God for their daily strength. Was there murmuring? Yes. Were there some that, that faltered? Yes. But each person went through. these provisions and this redemption. But, notice what Paul says in verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Even though they had all been redeemed from Egypt, many of them were overthrown. Even though they had started well in that they followed the cloud and they walked through the Red Sea, and they accepted the manna, and they accepted the water, and they were redeemed by the Lord, and they were provided for by the Lord, they didn't all finish well. Paul tells us that God was not well pleased with many of them, and that these many were overthrown in the wilderness. Many never made it to the promised land, did they? That group that was redeemed, how many out of that group made it to the promised land? Two. Two. Joshua and Caleb. With the rest, God was not well pleased. So they were overthrown in the wilderness. They had entered into the covenant. They had sought the Lord at the beginning. They had been partakers of many of the Lord's blessings and provisions, but they fell short of God's perfect blessing for them. Now, at this point, we need to draw some clear lines regarding what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying. We can spiritualize this too much or we can fall short of spiritualizing it enough. So let's be careful here. First, understand that Paul is comparing Israel under the physical Mosaic covenant and Israel in the physical redemption to the church's spiritual redemption. This is not comparing apples to apples here. Paul is not comparing Israel's salvation to the church's salvation. He is not comparing uh, salvation in the Old Testament to salvation in the New Testament. He is, par- uh, he is uh, paralleling a physical redemption of the nation of Israel as an illustration of the spiritual redemption that we have today. So let's not parallel this as Israel's salvation and our salvation in the spiritual sense. This is Israel's physical deliverance from Egypt which is a picture and illustration of our spiritual deliverance from sin. We must keep that very, very well delineated in our minds. Second, understand that those who were overthrown in the wilderness could not have all been unbelievers. He's not talking about those who went through all of these steps of redemption and then fell short at the end, didn't persevere, didn't make it quite at the end because they rejected 
Every child of Israel was overthrown except Joshua and Caleb. Do you know what that means? Moses was one in whom God was not well pleased and was overthrown in the wilderness. Aaron was one in whom God was not well pleased and was overthrown in the wilderness. Are we going to see them in heaven? Yes. Yes, we will. This is not talking about spiritual salvation here. This is talking about physical overthrowing because they they fell short of God's perfect blessing for them. They didn't make it to the promised land. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Aaron was overthrown. Moses was overthrown. Paul is not saying that all of these Israelites were not saved. They, 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 got, they were redeemed and then they fell short at the end. They didn't have enough faith. They weren't exercising enough saving faith. He's not saying that they were saved but they weren't because they didn't persevere or that they lost it at some point. Paul is speaking exclusively concerning the spiritual consequences of the Mosaic Covenant which had nothing to do with salvation and everything to do with the physical blessings and the cursings. The nation of Israel got to the promised land in a matter of weeks and they didn't exercise enough faith to enter in. So God said, you're all going to die in the wilderness. And there's only two that's going to make it into the promised land. The only two that won the prize, if we're talking 1 Corinthians 9, the only two that made it the very best race possible, the only two that ran the race the best, Joshua and Caleb. So what Paul is doing here is paralleling the expectations that God had of Israel with the expectations that God has for the church. It's not a one-to-one parallel. It's more of an illustration. All of the nation of Israel went through these events of faith and reliance and obedience, but only a few fully realized God's perfect will for them by entering into the promised land. In the same way, all born-again believers, the whole of the church of God, have exercised faith unto salvation. But just as many of the physically redeemed people in Israel failed to run the very best race possible, so too many of the spiritually redeemed in the church can fail to run the very best race possible. Metaphorically speaking, you can be saved and you can be provided for by the manna of the Lord, and you can be provided for by the spiritual rock that follows you, that is Christ, but you're doing nothing but wandering in the wilderness, murmuring and complaining, and allowing all of your sin to keep you away from the promised land that God has intended for you as a believer. That's what Paul is teaching here. That you are exercising the liberties to the extent of your brother's conscience. You are exercising your liberties to the exclusion of the gospel. You are exercising your liberties to the exclusion of that which is expedient. And in doing so, instead of resting in the promised land of the perfection of what God would have for you as a Christian, you are wandering in the wilderness. God's still providing for you. You've still been redeemed from Egypt. You're not going back to Egypt. You're still being provided for. He's still blessing you as a believer spiritually. You are still His child. He's chastening you back to Himself. You're having to go through the serpent in the wilderness as we'll talk about tonight. You're having to go through um, the the melting of the the idol and the drinking of the the gold. You're having to go through those things because you refuse to place all of your faith in God and simply obey Him as He wants you to, but you're still a believer. You're just not in the promised land. You're just not in the promised land. 
you're not receiving all of the blessings that you could. So the consequences of spiritual failure are not, is not inherently hell. As a believer, we know that that's not the consequence for our spiritual failure. But it will be loss of reward. Way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul warned the church of loss of reward. He is speaking specifically to the ministers, but certainly it parallels the entire church. He said this, 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. He won't, he won't be damned to eternal hell, the believer who is not doing what's right, who's building up um, wood, hay, and stubble. But when he gets to heaven, he's going to have a tiny little pile of jewels, gold, silver, and precious stones, and a whole bunch of wood, hay, and stubble. And when God judges the hearts of man, for we read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 this morning, that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive that which we have done in this life, whether it be good or whether it be bad. And we st- when we stand before the Lord one day, there's going to be a pile. And the Christian who has not lived for the Lord in this life, who has been wandering in the wilderness of his sin the entire life, he's still redeemed, he's still out of Egypt, but he will suffer loss. He will have died out there in the wilderness of his sin without ever receiving the blessings of the promised land. Without ever receiving the gold, the silver, and the precious stones that God intends for you to receive. That God intends for you to build up in your life. God wants you to have these blessings. What a God that would allow us to serve Him and then reward us for doing what we ought to do anyway. What a God. Back to verse 5. Just as those men, even godly men like Moses and Aaron, died in the wilderness because their obedience fell short, even so Paul tells us that we have the responsibility of learning from their example and purposing in our own hearts to live in complete obedience to the commands of God in order that we might run the very best race for Him. And so verse 6 tells us, these things were our example. Israel went through these things in the Old Testament in order that we might be delivered a divine lesson. Their failures are intended to become our victories. In a manner of speaking, their loss is our gain. Romans 15 verse 4 puts it this way, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Why did God record Genesis through Malachi if He was going to do something so new in the Gospels? Why is it there? Well, it's there for our learning so that we could learn who God is, so we could learn what He expects, and so we could learn from the mistakes of others so that we wouldn't make them ourselves. That's why they're there. We need to do that this morning. Now, I'm going to stop in the middle of this verse. We're going to pick up here this evening in verses 6 through 13. In the next several verses, Paul is going to give us the specific examples of Israel that have become lessons to the church today. He's going to give us five of them that we're going to learn from this evening. 
as Paul references the nation of Israel, will recognize that we are all redeemed. That everyone has come out of Egypt, if you are a believer in this room. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then um, in, in the terms of this illustration, you are redeemed from Egypt. You've come out of the land of bondage to your sin. The Passover lamb and that night of the Exodus was intended to foreshadow salvation by grace through faith. Just as Israel was brought out of physical slavery by the mighty hand of God, so too every believer is brought out of spiritual slavery to sin by the mighty hand of God alone. From the time Israel was redeemed, it was but a short trek to the promised land. God had intended them to be there in just a matter of weeks and begin to live out every promise of God for them and for their families. The promised land is meant to be a foreshadowing of victorious Christian living. A life where there are enemies, there are giants in the land, and yet, as we place our faith and our trust in the spoken word of Jesus Christ, we are able to overcome them and live in the prosperity and the joy of the Spirit. The spiritual joy and effectiveness that God intends for each believer is tremendous. But in order to obtain it, we must first step out in faith and conquer that land through the power of God. Conquer our flesh through the power of His Spirit. However, Paul tells us that with many, God was not pleased. That wilderness is carnal Christian living, folks. Instead of living in the peace and rest of the promised land, those folks in Israel wandered the desert for 40 years. God was still their provider. He was still their redeemer. But they fell short of all of God's blessings for them. As long as they persisted in their sin, they were unable to enjoy the fullest benefits of their redemption as God has intended them to enjoy. So it is with us, I fear. Many under the sound of my voice are wandering in the wilderness of Christian carnality rather than basking in the glory of Christian victory. And this wilderness does not mean you're no longer redeemed. It doesn't even mean you're not a godly person. Moses wandered in that wilderness. Aaron wandered in that wilderness. This wilderness does not mean that God will not provide for you just as He provided for Israel. But this wilderness does mean that you're falling short of God's best for you. And this is in the context of the liberties that you have in Christ and the necessity of limiting yourself for the sake of the things that we've talked about over the past several months. This evening we're going to consider the, the individual warnings, but this afternoon may I encourage you to truly meditate, meditate upon the possibility of Christian carnality in your own life and prepare your hearts to hear of these shortcomings in Israel that can be shortcomings in our lives as well, these sins that stick us in the wilderness of Christian carnality rather than moving into the victory that comes from living through the Spirit of God. So this afternoon, I'd like you to ask yourself two questions. They're up there. Number one, are you redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you ever come out of Egypt? Have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Or are you still stuck in the bondage of sin? You can't live a victorious Christian life if you're not a Christian. You can't live in the power of Christ's redemption if you haven't accepted and received that power for yourself. Are you a believer? Have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Or are you still 
rooted in your sin? Are you still living in your sin? Are you still stuck in your sin? Has there ever been a time where you have humbled yourself before God, recognized you're a sinner, recognized that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin, and accepted that free gift of salvation so that He could save you from your sin? If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you do so today? Would you tell God that you're a sinner? Would you tell Him that you know that your sin has placed you on the path to hell? Would you tell God that you understand and believe that Jesus Christ has paid that penalty for you on the cross of Calvary through His death, His burial, and His resurrection? And would you tell Him that you accept His free gift of salvation today? Say, Pastor, I still don't fully understand. I don't quite, I don't quite understand what you're talking about. Would you come see me? And I'll open a Bible and I'll show you what the Bible says about salvation. That's the first question. Are you even out of Egypt? Are you redeemed? Second question. Does your life exhibit the marks of a carnal Christian, of carnal Christian living? We've talked about carnal Christianity throughout 1 Corinthians. We don't have to wait until tonight to find out what those are. Disunity in the church. Disunity among believers. Pride that would keep us from correcting sin. Compromise. Fornication. We've seen them. We'll see many of them again this evening. And as you ask yourself this question, if the answer is yes, that you do see the marks of carnality in your own life, as we've talked about the liberties, and sacrificing those liberties for that which is expedient, for the conscience of a brother, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If your answer is yes, then this is what you need to know. If you see the marks of carnal Christian living in your life, this is what you need to hear. This is, this is the application of this morning. That you're not living out the very best of what God has for you. Maybe you're not wandering in the wilderness of sin. Maybe you did make it into the promised land as it were. And you're like those Israelites who didn't drive out the people from the land. And you're sharing the best of the land with the Canaanites. You're sharing what God would desire to bless you with, with sin, and it's becoming a snare to you. We can parallel this even beyond the intent of Paul's message this morning, but that's the application this morning, is if you are living out a life of Christian carnality, you are not living out the fullness of the spiritual joy peace and effectiveness that God wants you to have. So I encourage you to search your heart today. Prepare your heart for this evening as we look at the rest of these verses. And may the Holy Spirit help us to pinpoint places of carnality, to root them out, so that we can be living the fullness of the joy and spiritual blessing that God has intended for us to live. Let's pray.